everybody. Welcome to the Game Before the Money podcast. Celebrating pro and college football history, one legend at a time. Hi everybody, this is the Game Before the Money podcast. I'm your host, Jackson Michael, author of the book, The Game Before the Money, and also writer-director of the documentary, We Were the Oilers, The Love You Blue Era. You can visit Amazon.com for both items. In this episode, we have a very special guest as we welcome Dub Jones. Dub Jones played in all four seasons of the All-American Football Conference, the AAFC. And not only that, he played a big part on the legendary championship Cleveland Browns teams of the late 1940s in the AAFC and in the 1950s in the NFL. And not only that, as of recording this in 2020, he's one of only three players in NFL history to score six touchdowns in one game. And we'll hear his memories of that game. After his NFL playing career, he was an assistant coach with the Browns on the 1964 team that won the NFL championship. So we'll go over that and give us some insight as to what the Browns' offense did that day to help overcome that dominating Colts defense and score 27 points. Dub Jones was the second overall pick in the 1946 NFL draft, and he's the father of legendary Baltimore Colts quarterback, Burt Jones. And I'd like to take a second right at the top of the show to thank Burt Jones, along with his brother, Bill, and of course, Dub Jones, for making this interview possible and for all their great support in putting this episode together. You listeners are going to learn some deep football history on this episode. You'll gain some real insight into the game of football, and you'll hear some truly fantastic stories that no one else can give a firsthand experience of, especially about those legendary Cleveland Browns teams and the All-American Football Conference. Dub Jones was born just a few days after Christmas in 1924, and he grew up in Ruston, Louisiana, and attended Ruston High School. Dub was a speedy player throughout his career, and he credits his high school coach, L.G. Haas Garrett, for his running ability. Haas Garrett had great speed. He would play in a scrimmage with us, and I could get the feel of his running ability. And I contributed those afternoon sessions with him to my ability to run. Coach Haas Garrett is an absolute legend in Louisiana high school lore. He wasn't only Dub Jones's high school football coach, he was also Burt Jones's high school coach. He coached the Ruston High School Bearcats for that long to coach both father and son. And right now, Dub's going to tell us about his high school's highly unusual 1940 season. I guess you could say his school had a dominating defense. They tied about seven teams. No one could score on us. <laughs> and we, apparently, we couldn't score on any of the teams. Dub's team won the Louisiana State Football Championship the next year in 1941. 1941 was also the year that nearby Grambling State University hired a legendary college coach in Eddie Robinson. Eddie Robinson came to Grambling in 1941, that was the year that we won the state championship. And he was at our practice every day. 
during the course of the year. That might sound radical for its time. Eddie Robinson, an African-American attending white high school football practices, we're talking about the segregated Deep South in the early 1940s. But as Burt Jones told me later, sports is the great equalizer, and it brings all kinds of people together, and sports has done that for a long time. And in fact, we're going to see how sports brought a lot of people together quite a bit over Dub Jones's life. And we'll also talk more about his connection with the great Eddie Robinson later in the program. And there's some pretty big NFL history behind that friendship that goes all the way back to Dub's championship year in high school in 1941 and Coach Robinson's first year at Grambling. After high school, Dub went to LSU. He played there his freshman year before he enlisted for military training that transferred him to Tulane. I went to LSU. I was one of three freshmen to play varsity ball. Not that much, but play varsity ball. Bert always remembers that I was a player at LSU, and we beat Tulane. And then the next year, I was playing with Tulane, and we beat LSU. (laughs) (laughs) You're a difference maker. Those years were 1942 and 1943. LSU beat Tulane 18-6 in 1942, and Tulane returned the favor with a 27-0 victory in 1943. Dub transferred to Tulane as part of joining a Navy program. It was 1943, and everybody went into the service. I went into the Navy program, B-12 program. The Navy V-12 program took place at over 100 universities across the country and an estimated 125,000 young men enlisted. Other notable people who joined the Navy V-12 program at other universities include future Hall of Fame coach George Allen and future U.S. Attorney General Robert Kennedy. And my college coach at Tulane, was Mark Simons, who was also a great friend as well as a great coach. Dub's college coach, Monk Simons, played at Tulane in the mid-1930s and scored an 85-yard touchdown in the first-ever Sugar Bowl on New Year's Day of 1935. The touchdown helped Tulane beat a Temple team coached by the legendary Pop Warner. If you read the book, The Game Before the Money, you know that a lot of military service sports teams existed on military bases. Dub tells us about his submarine-based football squad and the team's equipment manager, a young man from St. Louis, Missouri. He was equipment manager on the football team, and he wanted to play football. And I said, well, why don't you come out and try out and play? And that's when I found out that he was the most valuable player the Yankees had. He was 18 or 19 years old. They wouldn't let him play. That New York Yankee prospect's name was Yogi Berra. Yogi and Dub became lifelong friends after that experience, and that's not even the full story. Yogi's son, Tim Barra, ended up playing with Dub's son, Burt Jones, on the Baltimore Colts. Tim and Burt were even roommates. How about that, as Yankee radio announcer Mel Allen would say. Dub Jones finished out his college football career at Tulane, and the Chicago Cardinals selected Jones with the second overall pick 
in the 1946 NFL Draft. 1946 was also the first year of the All-American Football Conference, now better known as the AAFC. The AAFC aggressively pursued college football stars much like the American Football League did in the 1960s. Dub tells us about his contract negotiations with the Chicago Cardinals of the NFL and the AAFC's Miami Seahawks. The Cardinals started the negotiations by asking Dub how much he'd like to make. And remember, he was the second overall pick in the NFL draft. I wanted to play with the Cardinals, but... They had asked me how much money I wanted, and I said $10,000. They said it was too much. The AAFC's Miami Seahawks then contacted Dub and asked the same question. And then the coach for the Miami Seahawks contacted me, and he said he would pay the $10,000 plus $2,000 bonus. And I said, well, I'll talk to Jimmy Councilman the Cardinal coach before I make a decision. So I did. I communicated with the Cardinals. They still thought that that was too much money. Dub got ready to sign with the Seahawks, and that's when the Cardinals realized that both he and the new AAFC team were serious about the money. I went back to the Miami Seahawks coach, and I told him that I would sign. And even before I signed, the Cardinals checked me out and realized that I really was going to sign with the uh, Miami Seahawks. And they uh, wanted to uh, sign me. And I said, I've already told the Miami Seahawks coach that I would sign for him. So I'm sticking to it. If I had gone with the Cardinals, they had a great team. And I often wondered what would have happened if I had. Here are a couple of things that did happen with the Chicago Cardinals after Dub signed with the AAFC's Miami Seahawks. The Cardinals got into a bidding war with the AAFC the next year for Georgia All-American Charlie Trippi. The Cardinals signed Trippi to a record $100,000 contract. We don't know for sure, but it's possible that the Cardinals took the AAFC a bit more seriously in going after Trippi and we're going to lose another top draft pick to the new league. What we do know for sure is that the Cardinals played in two straight NFL championship games in 1947 and 1948. We'll also focus on the 1948 NFL championship game with Upton Bell, son of Commissioner Burt Bell, in a future episode of the Game Before the Money podcast, so be sure to subscribe. Dub Jones would play in the 1948 AAFC championship on the same day that the 1948 NFL championship game was played, but we'll get to that story in a moment. Before reporting to the Miami Seahawks, Dub Jones played in the 1946 college all-star game. His teammates included Elroy Hirsch and a quarterback from Northwestern that would one day be Dub's teammate on the Cleveland Browns, the incomparable Otto Graham. Oh, I remember it as if it were yesterday. In fact, I feel confident it was because of Otto Graham that I ended up with the Cleveland Browns. I'm not sure about it, but my experience with Otto at the All-Star game gave him good insight on my value to the team. 
The annual college all-star game matched a team of college all-stars against the reigning NFL champions at Soldier Field in Chicago. The Rams won the 1945 NFL championship as the Cleveland Rams. This was their first exhibition game as the Los Angeles Rams after the team moved from Cleveland. The college all-star game was a big game. Over 90,000 people attended the game Dub played in, compared with just over 32,000 in the previous year's NFL championship game. Dub and his college all-star teammates shut out the defending NFL champion Rams 16 to nothing that day. Ironically, future LA Rams star Elroy Crazy Legs Hirsch scored two touchdowns to help the college all-stars win that game. And then Hirsch, Otto Graham, and Dub Jones all moved from the college all-star game to AAFC football camps. Hirsch to the Chicago Rockets, Graham to the Cleveland Browns, and Jones to the Miami Seahawks. Things got off to a rough start for Dub and the Miami Seahawks. Going into week 10, the Seahawks were 1-8. And eight. And that will tell you that we didn't have any talent. We did have one other player, Mark Gafford, All-American from Auburn. The Miami Seahawks didn't just experience trouble on the field. The franchise spun into financial trouble as well. Out of all pro football teams in both the AAFC and NFL, the Seahawks had by far the lowest attendance. They drew under 50,000 fans at home for the entire season, barely half of the draw of the second lowest team's attendance. The Miami Seahawks drew less than 3,000 fans to their season finale against the Brooklyn Dodgers in the Orange Bowl, which at that time was known as Burdine Stadium. Dub didn't start for the Seahawks that day, however. He started for the Dodgers. Dub tells the story. They fired the head coach and hired Ham And Ham was no fan of mine. And he traded me one game before the end of the season. The trade turned out to be a good deal for Dub as the Miami Seahawks folded at the end of the season. Monk Gafford also joined Dub in Brooklyn. The league absorbed the Seahawks and established a new franchise named the Baltimore Colts. For many of the Miami Seahawks, 1946 was their only year of professional football. Dub Jones, however, was just getting started. He spent 1947 with the Brooklyn Dodgers AAFC franchise. Branch Rickey, was part owner of the team. Dub says Ricky didn't get too involved with football operations, but he did get to know several of the Brooklyn Dodger baseball players, such as Pee Wee Reese, Duke Schneider, and Jackie Robinson. After all, both teams played in Ebbets Field. Pro Football Hall of Famer Cliff Battles was the head coach. Dub was stifled by a couple of injuries that season, including one on a collision with future teammate Bill Willis. He missed several games as a result. The Brooklyn Dodgers won only three games that year, but Dub found himself in the winner's circle the next season as a member of the Cleveland Browns. Cleveland traded former Michigan Wolverine star Bob Chappius for Dub. The Cleveland Browns previously won the AAFC championship both years in 1946 and 1947, and they weren't about to stop winning. The 1948 Cleveland Browns, and this might surprise some of you, went completely undefeated. 
through the regular season, and through the playoffs. The Browns won the 1948 AAFC Championship by a score of 49-7. And the next year, the Browns only lost one game, and they again won the championship. Dub scored a fourth-quarter touchdown in the 1949 championship game. That made him the last player to ever score a touchdown in the AAFC. Over four years in the AAFC, the Browns lost a total of four games. Only four losses in four years. And the Browns won the AAFC championship all four years. That led a lot of people to believe the AAFC wasn't up to par with the NFL. And while the Browns had won four straight AAFC championships, the Philadelphia Eagles won two back-to-back NFL championships in 1948 and 49. The AAFC and NFL staged a partial merger before the 1950 season, and the Browns, San Francisco 49ers, and Baltimore Colts all entered the NFL from the AAFC. So you had the Cleveland Browns with four consecutive AAFC championships and the Philadelphia Eagles with back-to-back NFL championships. In 1950, when the American Conference merged with the NFL, we opened the season in Philadelphia, and it was a big game. Dub caught a 59-yard pass in the first quarter to start Cleveland's scoring barrage. The Browns won that game 35-10 at Philadelphia in front of over 71,000 fans, a significantly larger crowd than any previous NFL championship game. In fact, you could add up the attendance of the two previous NFL championship games and not come close to 71,000. Now, all of you know today's Super Bowl is a big deal, But the official attendance figure from that Browns-Eagles game is even a bit more than each of the last five Super Bowls dating up to Super Bowl 54 between the Chiefs and 49ers. It's probably the biggest game that I've ever played in. The hype of Philadelphia being such a great team that the Browns didn't match it. But we changed that. Dub says that the Browns proving themselves over the Eagles was similar to the Jets defeating the Colts in Super Bowl III. But the Browns still had more to prove in 1950. They wanted that NFL championship banner. They finished the season tied with the Giants for first in their division, and they beat the Giants in a playoff game for the right to play the Rams at home in the 1950 NFL championship game. Dub caught a 27-yard touchdown pass to tie the NFL championship game at 7 in the first quarter. The Browns trailed by a point at halftime before Cleveland Hall of Fame receiver Dante Lavelli scored a touchdown. The Browns' lead, however, was short-lived. The Rams scored two unanswered touchdowns in the third quarter and took a commanding lead. The fourth quarter started with the Browns trailing 28-20 in an era when there wasn't a two-point conversion. Cleveland needed two fourth-quarter scores to win, but they did have one of the best quarterbacks in history leading the way. Dub Jones talks about the great Otto Graham. He was a great player. He was an All-American basketball player, and he was a pretty good golfer and baseball, and he could even play marbles. <laughs> 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 
can play anything. What the value of having a quarterback like that is your team never breaks. You know, what I'm referring to a team breaking, they give up during the course of the game. We never did that because we always knew that Hologram was there and he could and would make the big play before this game was over. The Browns didn't break. Graham threw a 14-yard touchdown pass to pull the Browns within a point. Cleveland got the ball back with a minute 48 left at their own 32-yard line. In the final minutes of the game, he really took us the length of the field for a field goal to win the game. I did have a reception on that last drive, but also I was faced with double coverage and uh, Otto Graham went to the other side as an illustration of the quarterback making a big play. That was a legendary drive that got the Browns a championship. Dub had a 22-yard catch during the drive that brought Cleveland to the Rams' 22-yard line. Shortly thereafter, Lou Groza lived up to his nickname, The Toe, and booted a field goal with only seconds left to win a thriller by a 30-28 score. Groza kissed his shoe for reporters after the game. The championship was a big deal for the Browns and the city of Cleveland. Both proved themselves big league with a world's championship and victories over both New York and Los Angeles in the playoffs. Dub Jones stood as a dangerous part of the Browns' offense, both rushing and receiving. Although when he first arrived in Cleveland, Coach Paul Brown wasn't sure of Jones's pass-catching abilities. Paul said the debate was going on whether I should play on offense or defense. And Paul said, I know that Jones can run the football, but I'm not sure about and the team used to refer to that through the years. He's a runner, but you don't know about a receiver. Instead, Dub found himself making a lot of NFL history with the Browns. Formation-wise, Paul Brown lined up Dub with two other players in Cleveland's backfield. Dub would be assigned to stay in the backfield or go in motion or flank out, lining up opposite of the split end. The term flanker is often traced back to Dub, and he's often referred to as the NFL's first flanker. Dub's son, Burt Jones, added that when he joined the NFL in the early 1970s as quarterback for the Baltimore Colts, the Colts still used the same terms the Browns created, such as dig, dag, and dog, to direct players to split out, stay in the backfield, or go in motion. But those are the more technical parts of history that Dub Jones took part in. His most visible piece of history took place on November 25th, 1951. The Browns invaded Chicago to play the Bears. It was the first ever regular season game between the two teams. The Browns had won seven straight and the Bears had won five of six. Well, I remember that the Bears were leading their division. And we were leading our division. The teams fought to a scoreless first quarter. Then Dub scored from two yards out in the second quarter to give the Browns a 7-0 lead. Later that quarter, Dub scored again on a 34-yard pass from Otto Graham. 
Jones then scored a touchdown the next three times he touched the ball. That gave him five touchdowns on the day. It just happened. I mean, it wasn't planned. It just happened that I had scored five touchdowns, and they had talked from the press box that Doug Jones had scored five touchdowns, and if he could score one more touchdown, he could tie the record. I went back into the game, although to the place that I caught. That's the only play of the game that was specifically planned for me to score. Dub scored six touchdowns that day, four rushing and two receiving. Oddly enough, his fifth touchdown was a 43-yard rush, and his sixth touchdown was a 43-yard reception. His six touchdowns in one game tied the record that Ernie Nevers created in 1929. Nevers also scored six touchdowns against the Bears. Gale Sayers matched the record with six touchdowns for the Bears against the 49ers in 1965. And that's it. In the 100 seasons that the NFL has played, Dub Jones, Gale Sayers, and Ernie Nevers are the only three people to score six touchdowns in one game. And a strange fact about that is even though those games were played in 1929, 1951, and 1965, George Hallis was the Bears' head coach in all three of those games. Dub shares with us another fact about the game when he scored six touchdowns. Instead of record for the most penalties, so it wasn't a pushover game. There were almost 375 yards worth of penalties between the two teams that day. The refs flagged the Browns 21 times that day, and one of the penalties negated a 94-yard interception return for a touchdown by Don Shula. Yes, that Don Shula. And that brings us to a little-known fact about the Browns that Dub Jones enjoys bringing up. If you listened to the 5 Minutes of Football History tribute to Don Shula episode on the Game Before the Money podcast, you know that Don Shula was a first-generation American. I'm real proud of the Browns. We had 19 first-generation Americans. And we had black Americans before Jackie Robinson broke the barrier in baseball. Marion Motley and Bill Willis broke pro football's color barrier with the Cleveland Browns in 1946, one year before Jackie Robinson famously did the same for Major League Baseball. And as Dub just said, Don Shula was far from being alone as a first-generation American playing for the Cleveland Browns. Lou Groza's parents both emigrated from what is now Romania. Dante Lavelli's parents moved from Italy. Abe Gibron's parents were Lebanese immigrants. Now, I'll delve deeper into this topic in an upcoming episode or a blog post on thegamebeforethemoney.com. Paul Brown's world champion Cleveland Browns were truly built by players from all over the world, from Dub's home in Ruston, Louisiana, to the Polish countryside, from which Hall of Fame center Frank Gatsky's father hailed. The 1950s Cleveland Browns dynasty, one that appeared in championship games for 10 consecutive seasons, was built by a group of men from many different cultures and backgrounds, working together 
to be the best. And the Browns usually prove themselves to be the best. Dub won championships with the Browns again in 1954 and 1955. He retired from football after the 1955 season, but he didn't stay away from the game. You might remember that Dub was close to legendary Grambling coach Eddie Robinson. Coach Robinson asked Dub to help out some, and Dub agreed. Dub was also friends with Grambling University president Ralph Waldo Emerson Jones. Moreover, Dub scouted players for the Browns. He knew that if both Coach Robinson and President Jones were overly enthusiastic about a player, that kid could turn out to be a potential star. One such player was the great Willie Davis, drafted by the Cleveland Browns in 1956. I signed Davis in President Jones' living room. He was a guard. We had so many guards, and Paul Brown traded Davis to the Green Bay. Lombardi switched him from offensive guard to defensive end, and he's in the Hall of Fame. Several years later, the Browns asked Dub to return to Cleveland as an assistant coach. Art Modell had fired Paul Brown and hired Blanton Collier. I had been out of football seven years. And Blanton Collier stayed after me to come. And I said, well, I'll go four months. So I went back as an offensive coach. Although Jones served as an offensive coach, a 1964 Browns rookie defensive back caught his eye as a potential pass receiver early in the Browns' training camp. Paul Warfield, we needed a defensive back, and Paul Warfield was the answer. I went up to rookie camp and saw what he could be. I first went to a defensive coach, Howard Brinker. I said, Howard, Warfield can do us more good as an offensive player than he will. As a defense man. So the two of us went to Black Jarrett, the head coach. Paul Warfield then went on to have a Hall of Fame career at receiver for the Browns and Dolphins. Of course, you can't think of the Cleveland Browns of the early to mid 60s without thinking of the great Jim Brown. In the 1950s, Dub Jones helped lead the Browns to championships by being a dangerous receiving threat, and he encouraged Jim Brown to increase his route running and receiving skills to help the team win. When you think of Jim Brown, you probably think of him running off tackle, running over three defenders, and into the end zone. But we're going to get to a real lesson in championship football here, and it deals directly with Jim Brown's threat out of the backfield on passing plays. The 1964 Browns made the NFL championship game against the Baltimore Colts, coached by Dub's former teammate Don Shula. The Colts were heavy favorites, but the Browns had a great game plan. And now Dub's going to fill us in on an important yet hidden aspect of Jim Brown's play that shaped some of the Browns' offensive scheme and impacted the outcome of the 1964 NFL championship game. Jim Brown was valuable from a lot of points that nobody knows about. For example, in the championship game, we opened the game with a 70F through with Jim Brown, and we threw the ball to him. Jim Brown made a nice catch and run on that play and picked up 23 yards. But there's a lot more to it than that 
that affected the rest of the game because the Colts had to adjust their defense. Dubs says that usually the Colts would have a middle linebacker who would assist covering Paul Warfield. The threat of Jim Brown receiving the ball forced the middle linebacker to adjust. You're having trouble with the middle linebacker flying out to take away the hook or the end pattern from Warfield. We couldn't do that with Jim Brown shifting through the line. And we dunked the ball to Jim Brown. From that point on, all he had to do was go through the line and we didn't have to worry about that middle linebacker getting in our way. Even though the ball is not thrown to Jim Brown, he still is a great weapon. The teams fought to a scoreless tie at the end of the first half. But don't forget that that Colts linebacker, who normally would help cover Paul Warfield, now stayed home to cover Jim Brown on pass plays after that first series. To compensate for that situation, the Colts had a safety go over and assist covering Warfield. It also resulted in Brown's receiver, Gary Collins, being left isolated on a cornerback without the extra safety help he would normally get if the middle linebacker could help cover Warfield on hook patterns. With free safety, I was worried about Warfield on the post pattern or the hook pattern. And then in the meantime, Collins is running the post pattern on the right-hand side. Gary Collins caught three touchdown passes from Brown's quarterback Frank Ryan in the second half. Two of them went for over 40 yards. And Collins finished with five catches and 130 yards in the Browns' 27 to nothing victory. One reason why he did have it is because the safety was tied to Warfield. And even though Jim Brown didn't catch many balls in the game, he was still a factor in the pass offense. Now, while it wasn't the only reason why the Browns won that day, the setup with Jim Brown locking up the middle linebacker on pass plays did help launch Gary Collins on some big plays. Football is the ultimate team sport, and that illustrates how a man like Jim Brown helped his team in ways most onlookers wouldn't even notice. You can hear more stories about the Cleveland Browns and their 1964 championship win in the John Wooten episode of the Game Before the Money podcast. He was a starting offensive lineman for the Browns that day. And as far as learning more about the 1950s Cleveland Browns, I'll also be posting an episode with the late Pete Brewster, who is one of Dub's teammates in the 1950s. So please be sure to subscribe if you haven't done so already. Dub Jones won championships as a player and as a coach. He's one of three players in NFL history to score six touchdowns in one game. He's also often credited as being the first flanker in NFL history. But Jones says when he looks back on his career, there's more to it than that. All I can say is I had some wonderful friends. And I hope that I will be remembered by them as a friend. And I'm not talking about just Oh, damn, I'm talking about the whole team basically put 
Thank you for listening to this edition of the Game Before the Money podcast. And again, thank you to the Jones family for helping make this episode possible. Please subscribe to our podcast and visit thegamebeforethemoney.com. A transcription of this podcast is available at thegamebeforethemoney.com. The Game Before the Money podcast is powered by our transcription partner, Sonics. S-O-N-I-X. Visit sonics.ai to learn more.